Welcome to Nutrition and Clinical Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. In 2021, Aspen bestowed the Lifetime Achievement Award to Dr. Peggy Gunter in recognition of her significant and sustained contributions to the field of nursing and nutrition support and for her 40 years of service and leadership to the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. The board established the Peggy Gunter Excellence in Clinical Practice Award. Each year, Aspen selects an individual who embodies Dr. Gunter's passion and efforts towards improvement in clinical practice and honors the recipient of this award with a lectureship at its annual Aspen Nutrition Science and Practice Conference. So joining me today is Dr. Stephen McClay, who provided the Peggy Gunter Lecture at the conference in 2022. Dr. McClave is here today to discuss with me his lecture and the subsequent paper entitled Expanding the Clinical Practice of Nutrition, Challenging the Known, Exposing the Inconvenienced Truths, and Engaging the Young, which is published in the December 2022 issue of NCP. Dr. McClave is a gastroenterologist in the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition in the Department of Medicine at the University of Louisville School of Medicine in Louisville, Kentucky. Of note, Dr. Gunter is a former editor-in-chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice, and Dr. McClave has also served as associate editor of NCP as well. So thank you, Dr. McClave, for joining me today. Great to be here, Jeanette. It's fun to get to do this podcast. So before we start a discussion, do you have any disclosures on this topic that you'd like to share? Two things. I would disclose that I'm on an educational consultant speakers bureau for Nestle and Abbott and on an advisory board for Avanos, but uh, none of those things would affect my comments today. The second thing is that I was honored to receive this award named for Peggy Gunter. I've worked with Peggy over the years, think the world of her. I think this is a more than deserving award, and I'm proud that Aspen would establish this lectureship in her honor. So Steve, I'm just going to start out at the beginning here. You could have chosen any topic probably for this lecture. So what made you choose this topic? I felt that expanding the clinical practice of nutrition was a mandate of the award. You know, how can we expand the clinical practice, make it more relevant, make it more important to uh, people outside the nutrition community, how to promote excellence in clinical practice. So I thought actually the choice of the topic was rather straightforward. The difficult part was the content because I had to go back and as a society, as individuals, I had to think, you know, what have we done well? What have we done not so well? What things are we doing that's really going to move the dial or what do we need to be doing 10 years from now? The, The content was probably the harder issue than just the overall topic. So Steve, you and I have been in nutrition support at least a little while. We'll we'll start with that. But what are some of the most significant changes that you've seen in nutrition support practice over your career? A number of things. First of all, I think we have a much better understanding of the underlying physiology of the nutritional implications of disease processes and what aspects of our feeding are affecting the pathophysiology of the stress response of injury of substrate utilization by the body. We just have a better understanding of that. I think the quality of uh, our research and the nutrition literature is so much better and really provides a, a, a substantial support for what we're doing. Both of us have seen topics uh, come and go. Uh, You know, in the past, nitrogen balance and visceral protein levels gave way to things like caloric deficit 
immunonutrition was something I bit real hard on. And these things aren't going away, but they've kind of taken a backseat to some of the newer issues, how our feeding and how disease processes affect the microbiome, evolving to a pathobiome, immune dysregulation, barrier defense, uh, and now probably the latest thing of personalized nutritional therapy, how the nutritional therapy should vary from one patient to the next. I think as uh, anybody sees changes across their career, the most important thing is to, to respond to the science. You know, don't hang on to a topic past the point at which you're being supported by the science. If the science says we need to go in a direction, you got to be malleable enough uh, in your mind and in your beliefs to move with the science. And the last comment I'd make is that I think we have better buy-in from the community outside nutrition, uh, that good docs really know nutrition is important. They're interested in, in uh, what we're trying to do with our nutritional therapy. And that's been a, a joy to see uh, in my career. One of the other things when I was reading through your paper, you actually have a section that's entitled advanced practice. So what does advanced practice kind of look like or entail in your mind? In general, advanced practice equates for an individual means more education, more skills, greater clinical expertise. And if an individual has the opportunity for any of that, you want to take advantage of it. This may take the form of an advanced degree. Pharmacists now, uh, I think, are mandated to have a PharmD, certainly getting a master's in some aspect, uh, either an MBA or a master's of physiology uh, can enhance your career. Academics take sabbaticals. Uh, and there's no reason that any of us couldn't arrange to go to another center to learn a skill or a technique or just see how they practice. You know, it can be a week at a time, month at a time. It doesn't have to be a full year. I think attaining certification for physicians, we have, uh, they should be boarded in nutrition. The American Board of Physician Nutrition Specialists or the NBNSC exam that the, uh, Aspen gives, the obesity exam, go to courses, attend our national meetings. Uh, these are all ways to promote advanced practice to increase your skill set and expand your horizons. One of the other sections was on clinical guidelines, and, and we know that you're a former author of one of the set of critical care guidelines. So why do you think that having clinical guidelines are so important to us as we practice nutrition support? I worked with Darren Highland in the clinic, Canadian Practice Guidelines. Uh, I was involved in the 2009 and 2016 Aspen Guidelines for Critical Care Nutrition, and then the GI, American College of Gastroenterology Guidelines for the Hospitalized Patient. Societal guidelines determine clinical practice, and literally, clinicians will say, he wrote the Bible or she wrote the Bible. They see these guidelines as setting the tone for practice, what you do and what you don't do. And you don't want to miss that opportunity. And when it's a societal guidelines, that adds so much more weight to it. These are the Aspen guidelines. These are the Aspen guidelines. That's much more important than the University of Louisville or the Baylor guidelines. It, it carries a lot of weight. I think guidelines close the gap between experts in the field and the clinicians. The clinicians learn faster and get closer to what the experts think the practice needs to be. It closes the gap between academic centers and community centers through guidelines. I think guidelines, when they're done correctly, they identify the key issues, they flush out an understanding of, of why we do what we do, and then it gives a roadmap as far as therapy and how we respond to the, the pathophysiology. 
uh, the problem that's going on right now, our guidelines are in a real, not a mess, but in a real turning point. And it comes because all this pressure to evaluate the quality of evidence in the literature. So you have epidemiologists on the guidelines committee, and then you have the clinicians. And ultimately, they are clinical guidelines. But this mandate to evaluate the critical appraisal of the literature, there's a balance there, and it can get out of whack. And I think that the latest guidelines from Aspen had a little bit of a, a more tilt toward more epidemiology, more discussion of bias, and the clinicians shy away from that a little bit. And what I'm seeing in response, if there's too much methodology, then we're seeing things like uh, a consensus statement. Uh, Matt Bechtel and the Interval Feeding Committee of Aspen turned out a beautiful paper that looked like guidelines. They just called it a consensus statement because it wasn't technically a guidelines. ASLD turned out guidance for frailty and liver disease. And they looked like guidelines, but they said in the introduction, these aren't guidelines. It's not a rigorous appraisal of the literature, but it's clinical recommendations for the practitioner at the bedside. There's a balance here. We certainly don't want to separate the academic epidemiologists, methodologists. We need those guys, but man, they've got to be clinical directives. So trying to get that balance correct is a real problem right now. One of the other things I just want to touch upon, I think it's really interesting that Aspen as a society has been multidisciplinary since it was started back in the 1970s. So why is it important to function in a multi or even interdisciplinary fashion when we're providing nutrition support at the bedside or in the home? Being multidisciplinary is, is, like you said, it's a historical precedent. It's in our society's DNA. It's our culture but it can be a strength and a weakness. So we got to think how we're utilizing it. The strengths for sure, it promotes a team approach. It, it gives everybody a voice uh, in our society, it gives leadership opportunities to mainly the four different disciplines. The potential weakness in my mind is that I think the term multidisciplinary is somewhat dated. You don't describe a multidisciplinary oncology team or a multidisciplinary burn team, it kind of has the connotation of four disciplines, physician, nurse, pharmacist, and dietitian. And we got to be careful that that doesn't limit us. Does that term really reflect the new era in which we really want to expand the nutrition services to include an interventional radiologist, a wound care nurse, a speech pathologist, certainly an endoscopist, either from GI or from surgery. So we don't want that term to tie our hands in any way. In the paper, I gave an example where we had the opportunity to bring four researchers over from Europe when the Dutch Popatia study was published. That was the probiotics and pancreatitis. And the uh, planning committee for Aspen Clinical Nutrition Week turned it down because it's four physicians and wasn't multidisciplinary. We could have handled that a little bit different because they were going to pay their way. We could have brought them over, had them present, to a panel that was multidisciplinary, and that might accomplish two birds with one stone. Clearly, multidisciplinary helps us uh, when we need it the most. There was an amazing paper that came out uh, early this year, 2022, in critical care medicine, in which they described the dynamics of the future intensive care team. And they described all the positions, physician, respiratory therapist, pharmacist, nurse, and they left off the dietitian. <laughs> unbelievably they left off the dietitian 
And man, the uh, Physician Engagement Committee came right back and fired off a very well written, very well referenced paper saying the dietitian is a position that is evolved and is expanding and is critical to any team in the ICU. So our multidisciplinary nature is a is a definitely a source of strength, but that sometimes just rewording the, the terminology, making sure it doesn't trip us up, but instead gives us power to expand and, and give a more comprehensive nutrition services. So I'm going to throw this at you, Steve. So one of our friends, Dr. Alba Rokas, likes to use the term now transdisciplinary. And yeah. with that, he's talking about how the lines are kind of blurred, that it's more the function that's important than the form. So that you mentioned too in your paper, talking about working at the top of your license, that when you have different disciplines working at the top of their license, sometimes the different tasks or things can be shared among that team. It doesn't always have to be one member of that team that has to perform that task. When we're working at the top of our license, several of us could maybe do that task. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I think that's a great point. Uh, my mentor that got me turned on to nutrition was Mitch Kaminsky, one of the four founding fathers, the third president of Aspen. And the old days are what you just described. We'd point to the dietitian, she'd do her part. We'd point to the pharmacist, they'd say their part. The nurse would add her part and the physician would supposedly tie it together. And, and that's not the way it is now. We, it has evolved. It is interactive. It's sometimes the biggest role of the dietitian is she knows the guy in interventional radiology personally. She can get a single lumen silicone Hickman now today for a home TPN patient. Or the dietitian knows the endoscopist that can get a peg in and she'll go down and serve as an assistant during the procedure. I mean, that's the thing where the lines are blurring and the more interaction you have between members, the better understanding you are of the value of a wound care nurse or what they have to offer. Pretty soon, you kind of know what to offer. And only when it gets really difficult, do you actually get, need the wound care nurse to come to the bedside. But you're right. The lines are blurring. And the, I think that's good. That's not bad. It's interaction, who you know, that gets the job done. So one of the other things I wanted to just get some feedback from you, because in your experience... What would you say are some of the foundational skills or knowledge that you need to have to be a successful nutrition support practitioner, whether you're serving your patients or clients at home or in the hospital or even in an extended care facility? There are a couple of things to think about here. One is that as nutritionists, we need to communicate in, it's a stump term, but we need to communicate in doctor speak. Our notes and the way we present a case, the way we discuss a case uh, in the hallways or on rounds needs to be the same language that doctors speak. You know, these teams, I'm on service right now. We have consults from infectious disease, from surgery, from oncology, and we speak the same language and their notes have a certain format. And the nutritionists need to match that. The A&D has worked very hard in developing the nutrition care process and the PES note, the, the problem, etiology, signs, and symptoms. But that's a separate language, and it doesn't look like the language that doctors speak. If you've ever had a prescription written for your eye exam, the ophthalmologists have a language that's totally different than everybody else. That doesn't promote communication. So the nutritionists need to start writing in a manner that matches what the docs are, are writing. 
it doesn't mean that the AND has worked very hard on that nutrition care process and that PES has coding value. It has value for nutritional research for dietitians. We want to support that, but put it in the right place of a note that looks like a regular note, HOPI, past history, chief complaint, assessment, and plan. The second part of that is Dietitians in particular, but also nutrition pharmacists and nutrition nurses, they have this nutrition knowledge and they're making recommendations, but they don't always say why they're making those recommendations. And we have to get better at articulating the nutritional concepts. We know that doctors don't get educated in medical school. And over three decades, that has not changed. The curriculum has not expanded to include nutrition. They get very little nutrition. And if the dietitians can learn to articulate what they're doing and saying, these are the principles I'm acting on. This patient does not need an immunonutrition formula because he's in a medical ICU, or this patient has a complication from surgery. He's in a surgical ICU. He needs an arginine fish oil formula because of this reason to articulate those concepts. And all my dietitians, they, they will present a case. They're acting on very good judgment, but it's become a game for them to tell me the principles of, of why they're doing what they're doing. And then always expand your skill sets. Assist in endoscopy to put a peg so that you get very comfortable working at the peg site, either burning uh, hypergranulation tissue or adjusting the bumper or adding a bumper if it doesn't have one. Go down to IR when they place a central line so you're comfortable taking the bandage off and addressing uh, granulation tissue there or looking for a tract infection. Be able to do CT analysis to diagnose sarcopenia. Become involved, if you can, with bioelectric impedance. Indirect calorimetry, embrace that and utilize it in your practice. Learn frailty tests at the bedside. If you have a liver patient and you've calculated a MELD score, the hepatologists have got a MELD score saying how bad their liver is. If the nutritionist comes in and said, wait, I have diagnosed frailty, that adds nine points to their MELD score. That might put a patient at the top of the list to get a transplant. And that's the way we contribute to the team. Those are skills that we need to have and can be a tremendous asset to the services that we're interacting with. I just want to clarify something too, Dr. McClave, on the MELD score and the liver frailty. There is a, as you mentioned, the liver frailty index is a highly regarded test that can help us predict outcomes of our waitlisted patients and maybe even of transplant outcome. It doesn't really change the MELD score, but transplant committees use those two things together to decide when to proceed with our patients. Actually, uh, uh, at a talk at DDW in May, the lead author on the frailty, Jennifer Lee, said that diagnosis of frailty adds nine points to the MELD score. Now, maybe that's an arbitrary thing that that committee came up with, but I don't know if the transplant surgeon is going to agree with that. You're saying that they take it into account? Correct. And currently there is not an official change in the MELD score that you use to list a patient with UNOS uh, um, based on frailty, but selection committees use it. And now whether or not they're going to change how that can be included in the MELD in the future, I'm not sure. But in the current time, committees look at it, but you don't actually adjust the MELD score or the MELD sodium score for transplant listing based on frailty. But we all know that it makes a difference. Yeah, that's a good distinction. And maybe uh, they're saying that it acts the outcome. Correct. The way the patient behaves is like a patient with nine higher points. Exactly. 
that's a good decision. That's good. A couple of things we've kind of talked about is what's happened in the past, kind of what's going on now, but what do you think lies ahead of us as far as challenges and what words of wisdom do you want to give those who are going to follow behind us and kind of mold the future of nutrition support? Uh, that's a great question. I'd point out a couple of things. Embrace collaboration and interaction with other societies. That means possibly joint symposium at meetings, their meeting and our meeting. It certainly means guidelines. The minute you identify a topic for guidelines, you know, figure out what other society we can collaborate with. That gives instant gravitas or further gravitas to our whatever project or process you're working on to have the support of a second society. I think a big thing in nutrition, we're never going to be a medical subspecialty that I can see, at least in, in our lifetime. So we can't expect all these people operating in different silos, oncology, geriatrics, obesity. They're not going to come to us or come to our meeting or, or come together and be in one place. We have to learn to go to them. Uh, perfect examples, we're developing ENT guidelines right now. We have to go to the ENT patient population and the care providers in that subspecialty, learn what the issues are and help them identify and address the nutritional issues in that subspecialty. So that's a real switch in my mindset. I'd always dreamed about the practice of nutrition, just like the practice of surgery or medicine or oncology. Another thing is uh, nutrition has to be relevant outside of the nutrition community. We can't just preach to the choir. We have to make sure that our message gets outside of our meeting, outside of our journals, outside of our friends and colleagues. That may mean we have to change the messaging. Perfect example is the uh, Malnutrition Awareness Week. That really catches administrators. It catches the public. It catches patients. They have a right to good nutritional therapy. Surprisingly, it may not affect physicians as much. Physicians might respond to a slightly different message, like an intern would get an award or get a pin or get recognition because he ordered an appropriate nutrition consult when it was needed that he diagnosed obesity when it was present in his patients. You know, they, they have these other uh, campaigns to, to try to promote behavior in physicians that would be different than you would a project to address for the public. Um, another thing, uh, words of wisdom is the importance of mentoring. Uh, it, sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm totally amazed that I have served as a mentor to somebody. I might've seen them as, a, as just a companion or a colleague or somebody with greater expertise than myself. And then all of a sudden they say something, I realize, well, maybe I had an effect on them. Never underestimate that and work at mentoring, work at having a relationship with your colleagues to kind of spread the importance and value of nutrition. A paper in the hallway, a randomized trial might win an argument but mentoring is gonna change uh, somebody else's career. So uh, I think keep that in the back of your mind. I think those are great words. I guess one more question that I'd like to address to you then is if you had a few calls to action, what would you say those calls to action are for those listening? Number one, help us change the name of the, our society. We can keep it Aspen, but we gotta rename it to indicate that we're expanding it beyond just enteral and parenteral feeding. ESPEN did it and kept their letters. Uh, we need to do it. Uh, number two, think consciously about one-stop shopping, that you are the nutrition focus at your institution, and they just have to get hold of you 
and you'll make everything else happen, whether it's a central line, whether it's a feeding tube, whether it's a complication, whether it's diagnosing short bowel syndrome or frailty. One-stop shopping is all they need and you'll be the organizer to make it happen. Learn how to diagnose sarcopenia by CT scanning. Learn how to diagnose frailty. Learn how to place feeding tubes. Have a phone and access to your institutional library so that if somebody stops you in the hall, you can bring up the study that is the key of the argument you're having. So be the social media slash resource person that can bring those studies up. And then finally, a, a call to action would be focus on your assessment. Is your assessment in your note describing the clinical issues at hand and giving the reason for the recommendations that are to follow? So focus on that. Those are great points. Um, before we close, are there any other comments that you'd like to leave with our listeners? Yeah, two things. You already referred to that top of license mentality. That comes from Beth Hall, who's a dietitian that realized that patients had pegs placed and then were just sent home. And they are immediately back in the ER. They had problems, questions, complications. And she set up a clinic. She met them before they got the peg placed. And then she followed them afterwards and saved money, saved complications, saved patient time, and saved the institution from a draw on their personnel. We should all have top of license. That means we practice at the absolute skills. We, we attain as many possible skills as we can, and we seek to perform at the top of our subspecialty or, or our profession. And the second thing uh, would be that we have a full service nutrition consultation, that we are a consult service, no different from ID or oncology or whatever, and we address every issue that even touches uh, nutrition. And then the last thing in the part of that is the one-stop shopping, that they call you and you'll provide the full service consultation. Well, thank you, Dr. McClay, for joining us and participating in this podcast and, and really sharing your insight with our, our listeners today. Yeah, it was great to be part of this. And again, uh, a tribute to uh, Peggy Gunter for all she's done for our society and, and as a role model for uh, how should we direct our own personal careers. And finally, I want to invite our listeners to find out more about this topic and other nutrition support articles and the December 2022 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Thanks for joining us today.